So today we are in John chapter 13. This is a, 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 maybe a familiar story. It's part of the Easter week celebrations. A lot of churches will have a Monday, Thursday service where there's a foot washing included with that. This is the chapter of the Bible where Jesus gets down on his hands and knees and washes the disciples' feet. And so we're going to dig into this story. A couple things I'd like to give you as a preview just to have in mind as we go. Number one is the connection between foot washing and crucifixion. There's some parallels there that you're going to see as we go to John 13. That in Jesus getting down on his hands and knees to serve his followers, his disciples, there's, some, there's a preview of what's to come in this crucifixion week. Uh, number two is, is there's, there's really two things happening with the foot washing. One, Jesus is literally doing something. It's not just metaphor. He's actually touching the smelly, stinky feet of these guys who walk around in sandals all day. And number two, he's also modeling something. So there's, there's both something that is accomplished in the foot washing and there's something that is demonstrated. So there's a show and a tell that's happening here. So maybe that seems pretty basic, but I want to give you that preview as we go to John 13 together. And you know, whenever we go to God's word, come with that prayer and that heart that says, God, what are you requiring of me today? What are you transforming in me today? What's the action step that I leave here with? Let's go, let's go to God's word with that humility today. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It's a reaffirmation that Jesus knows who he is. He knows his identity. He knows his mission. He knows where he's come from. He knows where he's going. And throughout all of this, the, the thread that continues is his love. His love. Now, it's not an emotional love based in feelings, based in tingles and goosebumps. There, there are aspects of that. Uh, but it's really a practical love that says, I'm not putting me first, I'm putting you first. And that's the same love that brought Jesus to this planet uh, to, to walk around as a human as you and I are. John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus' whole mission began with love. It was carried out with love. And now he's loving them to the end in a very practical way demonstrating this by the foot washing, chapter, or verse two. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. How many of you have ever had someone else wash your feet? I'm not talking about in infancy. I'm talking like in, in recent memory, you've had someone wash your feet. How many of you just love that experience? You'd like to have that happen on a daily basis? A couple of you, cool. Is this, is this like a pedicure thing? I... Uh, you know, this is a bit of a foreign concept in our culture, right? Like typically this is not the practice that we are, are familiar with, that we go around washing other people's feet. Um, when you read God's word, let me give you a couple of options. Number one, you could read this as God's personal love letter to you. So there is no context back here in this book. It's all about me, my heart. So as I'm reading through this, I just kind of, I read a, a story about foot washing. I try to figure out how does this connect with my story? How does this relate to me? I'm imagining Jesus washing my feet. That would be one option. I would caution you against the, the, the Bible is God's personal love letter to me approach. Another approach you could use, which would also be maybe swinging the pendulum too far the other way, is it has nothing to do with me. It's all a story about what happened back then. And you can just dis dissect this in some historical, scientific way and find out what did this mean? How did diff different people interpret it? How was this compiled? Uh, you know, when did some later editor put in some verses that weren't in the original manuscript? And you can read it in a very detached way that has nothing to do with you. Let me tell you the best way to read your Bible. 
It's very simple. Number one, read this with a prayerful, studious heart that says, what did this mean to them? What did this mean for the people back then? And then number two, how does this apply to me? How does this change me? How does this transform me? What do I do about it? So do that in a two-step plan. What did this mean to them and what does this mean for us? Why do I say that? Because if we don't do both steps of that, we're going to read foot washing and ladies, you're going to think pedicure. Guys, I, I, I think there are, there are some man, man pedicures going on these days. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know that I'll ever be partaking of that, but um, just because out of love for the people who work at these places and knowing what my feet look like. Um, but we don't want to import our understanding of what this might be into their context. So what, what is foot washing in the first century in the ancient Near Eastern world? Just a real brief s- sketch on this. Well, you've got people walking around with sandals on their feet on dusty roads. There's not nice cement uh, sidewalks running everywhere. And so when you go into someone's home, you remove your shoes, and now you've got these dirty feet to contend with, and you don't want to bring into this home everything that you've collected on the journey to that house. And so foot washing would be a common practice uh, in, in any home that you enter. Okay, we've noticed some cultural differences between Minnesota and Colorado when it comes to shoes in the house. I think it's just a a function of, in Minnesota, the snow never leaves. And there's always salt and sand and snow and slush that, you know, if I come walking into your home, I'm going to track that all the way into your nice hardwood floors and your carpeting. Here we live in a nice dry climate. It's a lot cleaner. And so you can actually walk into people's homes with your shoes on here. And it's okay. My children, you know, coming from Minnesota, they're, they're still a little bit of a shock. Like, oh, they've got shoes on and they're in the kitchen. What's wrong? Okay. But we've, we've adapted to the culture here. Culture in a first century ancient Near Eastern culture, you would not only remove your shoes, but you'd also have your feet washed at the door as you enter the home. Now, the, the next detail you need to know about first century foot washing is who washes the feet of the visitor. This is the most menial of tasks. In fact, they believe that it was so menial of a task that you wouldn't even force a Jewish servant to wash the feet of a visitor. It was a task reserved for a Gentile slave. So not just at a servant role, but at a slave role. It was a task that women or children could perform in their culture Again, we're talking lower segments of society. No offense to the women and children present today. We're looking at first century culture and their understandings. There are no historical examples in any recorded literature except for this one story of a superior washing the feet of an inferior. In fact, there are very rare examples of a peer washing the feet of someone who's considered an equal in status and in society. So those are all really important things to know as Jesus goes through a whole series of actions. It's not just the foot washing, but we've seen some real detail here on the preparations for the foot washing as Jesus, you know, these men are are reclining at table. It's a formal dinner, not just a regular sit down and eat dinner, but laying on some comfortable pillows around the table, settling in to dine together. And Jesus all of a sudden gets up and everyone notices There's only 13 guys there eating a meal together. And he stands up and he takes out his outer, he takes off his outer garments and he puts on a garment that signifies menial servant, lowly servant about to perform a task that is not proper or culturally acceptable for someone of higher status to perform to someone else. This would be embarrassing at a minimum for his disciples gathered there that day. Uncomfortable. Not, not like the, the feeling that you get, ladies, when you're, when you're being pampered with a pedicure, like, I like this. This is kind of relaxing. No, this would be offensive, uncomfortable, confusing for the disciples. And we'll see in, in the words of Peter those very sentiments. Most of the disciples were speechless. They had nothing to say. 
They're just in stunned silence as the one that they clearly know is the superior in the room is humbling himself to this level. Now, mingled with this story, there's a preview of what else is to come in this chapter of betrayal and the devil's role in Judas' heart. And so right among you know, this group of close, intimate friends, there's one who is having his feet washed by Jesus, and Jesus already knows that he's going to be the betrayer. And yet he's among the disciples there in the room, and Jesus is down serving him as well. Well, in this context now, Jesus, verse 6, came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. My understanding of this verse is that this is not just referring to foot washing. You know, because really at the end of the story, Peter still doesn't understand. You know, at the end of the foot washing, it's not like, oh, the light bulbs have come on. Now I understand, like you said I would, in verse 7. It's really not until crucifixion and resurrection that Peter's eyes are opened. And so what Jesus is giving here is a preview of the foot washing is connected to a bigger theme of how I love, how I love sacrificially, how I love with humility, how my love is effective at cleansing you in a deep way. And we'll see more of that. What I'm doing right now, Peter, you don't understand, but you will at the end of the crucifixion week you'll understand what I'm doing. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Again, it's one of these double meaning verses that we've seen over and over again in John's gospel where there is a kind of a this worldly way of hearing it and most people go that way. But then there's a from above message that Jesus is communicating. What he says is is true and really easy to see, right? Think about your heart. Think about your story. Unless Jesus cleanses you from your sin and from your past, you can have no part in him. It's his effective work on the cross that cleanses you and takes away sin stain. You can't climb over the wall to get into his sheepfold. There's one gate and he's the gatekeeper. There's one good shepherd who guides the sheep and leads them. There's one source of light. There's one truth. There's one way and his name is Jesus. If I don't wash you, you can have no share with me. Now Peter gets excited and he's overly exuberant and he says, well, Lord, then not my feet only but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. Again, I, you know, Judas is there reclining at table. Jesus is making his way around the table, washing the feet of the disciples. When he gets to Peter, he has this interchange that we've just read. I believe it's likely that when he says that second veiled message, he's arrived at Judas. He's washing the feet of the betrayer. And there's some meaning that Judas is beginning to understand. We'll see some more of this kind of winking and nudging going on throughout this scene in chapter 13. But there Jesus is, the, the God himself, the king eternal, stepping into human history and now putting on the garments of a menial servant to go before these men and humble himself and put them first, even the betrayer. The message that Jesus shares with Peter is that that cleansing touch of Jesus is the only thing that cleanses. And once you've got that, it's sufficient. It's enough. It's all you need. You know, you don't need all those other ways that humans come up with of how can I cleanse my stain of sin? How can I make up for my past wrongs, for my, the internal motivations of my heart? And there's a lot of things that people try to atone for their sins, right? 
And that could depend on the culture you come from, the religious background that you have, your own upbringing. What are some of the things that you have tried, think about it, to remove that guilt or that stain or that sin from your past? You know, maybe it's, well, you know, I remember that I did that, but if I can do enough other good things, it'll offset that one negative. Maybe it's by comparison. Well, you know, yes, I did that bad thing, but I'm better than this other guy. Maybe it's doing penance. Maybe it's by trying to be more disciplined. Maybe it's trying to take some substance into your body that will numb you and deaden the memory of your past wrongs. There's a lot of things that we try to cover our own sin, and all those things, at the end of the day, we're still unclean. That, that stain of sin is still present. I, I shared with you last week, I'm worried about sharing the gospel in American culture today because of views on sin within our culture. You know, it used to be that we had this kind of, you know, Protestant work ethic in our nation, and we had maybe some, maybe the, 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 the imbalance that we had was too much of a works-based mentality in our culture, but it was, there was an awareness of right and wrong, and so when you talk to someone in our culture about their sin, it hit home, it hit pay dirt, because everybody felt guilty for something. There was some good guilt working in people's hearts that you could capitalize on to introduce them to grace. Nowadays, people don't have that sense of guilt, Nowadays, we take pride in our sin of the day. And we celebrate pride. Can you believe we celebrate pride? God's word says pride is a sin. And we celebrate pride today. And I'm not just talking about gender persuasion or homosexuality. I'm talking about whatever the sin is. We live in a culture that celebrates and elevates sin and says really sin is no problem at all. And it's as if we're looking at our uncleanness and saying, I'm fine. Not just dirty feet, but dirty hearts and minds polluted and corrupted by sin. Let's pray that people will have a a fresh realization of their sinful condition because that's a prerequisite to coming to Jesus and saying, only you can cleanse me. Only you can make me right. Only you can restore me. And I know that maybe you have been down this path and a lot of people have where all, all of those things that you try to do to negate your sin, put it out of your mind, suppress it, cover it over in your own strength, it, it really doesn't work. At the end of the day, there's no hope down that path. There's no joy. There's no abundant life that God intends. And it's only Jesus and his cleansing touch that can change a human heart. Let's pray that God will bring us into a culture that has a distorted view of sin and help us to bring good news the good news that Jesus cleanses and he is the cure to sin stain. So his, the first part of this chapter that we've read is the effectiveness of, of what Jesus is doing. Not just in, the, in the, the foot washing, but in the crucifixion that it symbolizes. The cleansing of human hearts that's to come. It's effective. It works. It's not just a symbol. It's not just a metaphor. But now Jesus really drives it home for his disciples. And he goes into a discussion of the example that he's setting. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place. And he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Oh, that's, a, that's a valid question. It's a, a fair question. They've just had their worldview rocked as a superior has washed the feet of an, in, of an inferior. And really, they don't fully understand yet because he has not yet been glorified. He's not been elevated, lifted up, raised on the cross, raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father, made known to all that he is the glorious king. So that part is not yet in the understanding of the disciples. In fact, they don't really even understand this foot washing. We just saw Peter misunderstanding in a variety of ways. So the answer to the question is probably no. And now Jesus explains it for them. Let me, let me spoon feed it to you. What, ha- what has just happened here? You call me teacher and Lord. And you are right. For so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, 
you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. This is very practical. This is not just a a metaphorical uh, story here that we can kind of apply metaphorically to our own lives. Well, you know, I'm sure glad I live in Colorado where we don't wash other people's feet. It's not a part, part of our culture. Thus, I can just metaphorically apply Jesus' teaching to how I interact with all of you. Like, you know, Jim, I'm just gonna metaphorically wash your feet today. Let me carry your chair and stack it for you after church here, brother. I mean, there is something significant, disturbing, uncomfortable about how Jesus is serving. And he's, he's going through some symbols that are going to point to another call to all of his followers and believers in how we interact with one another. Now, this is a very specific kind of love. This is not just a be nice to everyone in culture kind of love. He's speaking specifically about how disciples relate to other disciples. So look across the room, okay? You guys on this side, there's some other disciples over there. They're a little weird. I don't know why they're sitting on that side of the room, but still, look at them. And you guys over here, you know, they got some issues over here. And Jesus is saying, you see what I'm doing with the towel and basin? You see the, what's to come next week? You're gonna understand better as I go to the cross. That kind of love is what I expect you to model in, in your relationships with one another. In fact, at this point, it's all an example. It's about to become a command. So Jesus says the example that I've set is how you are to interact with one another. That you, even if you are superior in rank, in status, in age, in class, in caste, in finances, in ability, in intellect, in knowledge, whatever way that you've got of slicing and dicing it, that you put yourself in that superior position to someone else in this room, you take off that garment and put on instead the towel and pick up the basin and get down and wash the feet of someone that you consider inferior. That's, how I, that's the example I'm setting, says the one who is the teacher and is the Lord. He gives a reminder of who's really the servant's who are the ones who are sent and who is the master and the sender. He knows who he is. He knows his identity. He knows where he came from. He knows where he's going. He knows his mission. And with all of that in mind, he gets down on his hands and knees and served. What about you? Do you know where you've come from? Do you know what your identity is? Do you know where you're going? Do you know your purpose? Do you know your position? It's easy to begin to believe the lies that says, you know, my identity is, insert job title, insert family designation, and to lose sight of the fact, oh no, my identity, I'm a servant. My identity, I am a messenger. My mission, it's easy to to lose sight and think, oh, my mission is to acquire to advance, to enjoy. You know, those things may come along as as ancillary aspects of the mission, but the mission is to glorify the king, to make him known, to worship him, to fulfill the mission that he sent you on, to remember who is the Lord and who is the teacher. And when you get a hold of that, it becomes easier to take off the robe and put on the towel and to serve those that he's put you in relationship with. It gets very practical. Husbands, look at that woman that God has given to you. There's a towel and basin that you can choose instead of the pants that you normally put on a reminder of who's wearing them. Right? And ladies, you put those pants on sometimes as well. Right? Children, to parents and parents to children within the families. Siblings, 
I mean, this is very practical. It's not metaphorical. What are the ways that you can wash the feet of the people in your own home? That's where it begins. To put their needs before your own. To humble yourself before them. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. There's a cruciform way of living that Jesus calls his disciples to, and he demonstrates it here with the towel and basin. What about in your church? I'm thankful for the people that week after week serve the rest of us by driving trailers and rolling out cords and practicing worship music and preparing kids' ministry lessons and all of the ways that, and I'm leaving people out, you know, setting up signs and greeting and many, many things that go into uh, us being able to come on a Sunday morning, setting up chairs. And, and man, you're doing Jesus' kind of work as you do that. And that's a joy and a privilege that we all get to participate in. So I encourage you, if you've, if you've been missing out on that, Obey the teaching that Jesus has here. Look for a way that you could plug in and serve and use those gifts. Talk to one of the ministry leaders or pastors here and we'll, we will give you, we'll, we'll put a sign-up sheet right in front of you and it'll get real practical. It won't be a, a metaphorical towel and basin. Man, you will have a chance to get down on your hands and knees and, and serve. I'll tell you a little story. Um, on our 15th anniversary, Heidi and I took our, our once-in-a-marriage Cruise. We won't do that ever again because I get motion sickness. <clears throat> but we took a cruise and, and enjoyed that. But one thing, you know, what we enjoyed, one part of the cruise that we enjoyed was meeting all of the, 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 uh, the staff that work on the, on the ship. And they're all wearing a name tag that just had their first name and what country they were from. And so we've traveled quite a bit, so we, we liked uh, getting to meet the different staff and, and trying to greet them in their language if we knew enough of their language to greet them in that language. We enjoyed that. But we noticed a couple of um, examples during the cruise of some really despicable fellow Americans on that cruise. That, that when they got in this situation where there were people serving them, they started to think that they were royalty or something. And it was like they were treating these people in ways that were unbelievable. Like, what century are you guys from? And we saw that, and I just thought, you know, that is the condition of the human heart. Our default setting is that we don't come to serve, but to be served. We don't come to put on the towel and take up the basin. We come looking for the robe and the throne and the crown. We don't come getting down on our hands and knees. We come trying to get other people to bow before us. And man, it's so easy to slip back into that mode in our homes, in our church interactions. And so Jesus had to make it real practical for his disciples and say, do you understand what I just did? Do you remember the feeling of me touching your feet? That's how I want you to love each other. What a, what a, a permanent impression on the hearts of his disciples. Every time they look at one another to remember, oh yeah, man, I'm ticked off at you today, but I remember Jesus washing my feet. I think you might be the betrayer, and yet Jesus didn't care. He served and gave. He didn't skip anybody around that table. He got down and washed the feet of the unworthy, unclean men gathered there because of his good plans and for his glory and his purposes. And he commands us to do the same. Verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Man, the rubber meets the road here. This is not just a theoretical Sunday morning of, yeah, that, that was a good word. You know, we, we, we learned some theoretical ideas about serving and putting others first. The blessing only comes when you put it into practice and do it. And it starts on a Sunday afternoon, on a Monday morning. It's a day-after-day decision of who do I put first. Jesus said, I am not speaking of all of you, I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, 
that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. There's a preview of of what's to come in the betrayal, and really, the betrayal is bigger than just the betrayal. It's bigger than just a kiss from Judas onto the face of Jesus. Really, this is setting into motion a chain of events that leads to the cross, and that's why this is significant in the story. One thing that I noticed here is that as Jesus is talking about, I know whom I have chosen. He's the only one who does in this room. The rest of the disciples don't even know what he was referring to at this point in the, in the narrative. But they definitely can't look around the room and go, that's the betrayer. Only Jesus knows that heart, which should take some of the pressure off of you and off of us that you can just indiscriminately love and serve anyone in this room. You don't need to, to sift through and find out who are the wheat and who are the tares. Who are the faithful lovers and servants of Jesus? And who's the betrayer or the denier in the room? Go ahead and just love indiscriminately and give his grace and service to one another. And he will sort it out. He knows who, whom he has chosen. And he, he knows whose hearts are hardened to him, but we don't. The other part that at the end of his uh, dialogue here in verse 20, whoever receives the one I send receives me. There's something about the serving. The, the men at Men's Coffee on Wednesday morning were talking about you know, how uncomfortable it would be to have your feet washed by someone else. It would almost be easier to be the one who you know, if, if I made you do this, if I brought in some bowls and water today, it's okay, I need a volunteer from every row to go down the row and wash the feet of the other people in the aisle today. Probably most of you would be like, okay, I, I, I'll do the foot washing thing because getting my feet washed is weird. But just, you know, let's just keep the pastor happy and I'll just do this thing and we'll get it over with and get out of here, Right? And some, one of the guys said, I think it was my son-in-law, Samid, said, you know, it's just like it's easier to be the one singing happy birthday than the one who's standing there having everyone else singing happy birthday, right, for most of us. I thought that was a good, a good analogy here. And so in this receiving and sending, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Maybe two, two applications on that. One, when someone comes obeying Jesus' command to love as he has, when someone says, I've seen the example of Jesus with the towel and basin, and I'm here today to obey that command, I, I want to serve you, I want to love you the way Jesus did. Receive it. Receive that sacrificial love, that other-focused love, and be gracious. Say, thank you, you're doing a good job. Let me affirm that I see Jesus working in you, you're, you're looking more like him today than you did last week. Receive that because when you receive someone who loves in his name, you're receiving him. And number two, take heart to know that as you go out and people receive the service and the love that you give, it's bringing glory to him. It's bringing glory to the king who sends you, the one that you belong to. And as you serve, it's not about you know you getting some badge of honor, taking a selfie, look at me, hashtag serving like Jesus. Get some public recognition for that. No, it's not about you or your glory at all, but he gets the glory as you serve and as you give and as you obey his command to love like he does. And so this story now spills into the, the flip side of the example that Jesus has just set of humbling himself, uh, putting himself second and others first. We see a character in the story who's not on board with what Jesus has been doing and teaching. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. No dialogue, stunned silence as they look around the room. 
We're having this intimate dinner together with Jesus. We've been together for three years. We've gone everywhere that he's gone. We've seen the miracles. We've heard the teaching. One of us will betray him, and they're looking at one another. And one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. That's the first time we see that phrase in John. It it pops up a couple more times. We think that this is the author of John's gospel. That's in a a humble, self-deferential way. He's just kind of hiding behind this story and just saying, I'm, I'm, no, I'm no one important. My name is not even significant. I'm just a guy Jesus loves. But what a, what a great title to lay hold of. What if, ladies, what if you would see yourself that way and say, I'm just, I'm just the gal that Jesus loves. Guys, I'm just the dude that Jesus loves. That's who I am. That's all you need to know about me. That's my identity. And he was right next to Jesus at the table. So as they're looking around and they're wondering, who, who is he talking about that's going to betray him? The guy that Jesus loves is right next to him, close to Jesus. And so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. Gives him a little, a little nudge, a little nod. Hey, John, who's he talking about? So, That disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Um, There's nothing inappropriate about this kind of male affection that we're seeing. Very culturally relevant and totally fine. Um, I lived in Equatorial Guinea, West Africa for a year. I had a Nigerian friend who was a dude, and we got close enough that one day we're walking down the road and he grabs my hand as we're walking. That's a little weird if you're an American dude. Not at all weird if you're from Nigeria. Totally acceptable, totally fine. It would be weird to see a man and woman walking down the road holding hands together in Nigeria or in the ancient Near Eastern world. Um, That would be, you know, it would signal promiscuity or some kind of really forward uh, sexual overtones. But for, for John to just lean back against Jesus, totally acceptable in their culture, all right? I'm not, guys, I'm not advocating that here at Men's Coffee on Wednesday. (laughs) Again, what did this mean for them? How does this apply to us, okay? And so he leans back and asks this personal question of Jesus, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, so this is a quiet dialogue between Jesus and the one disciple. And for, for his hearing only, as I understand it, Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. And he lets John in on the secret of who the betrayer is. And he dips the morsel and hands it to Judas, which tells me Judas is right there as well. Perhaps John on one side and Judas on the other side, close enough to be touching Jesus. And he hands this to him and Judas takes it. And this is an unholy communion. You know, that we, we talk about this is the Last Supper. This is the, the beginning of what we celebrate once a month here at the Way Church when we have the table set up and we take the bread and the cup and we remember his sacrifice. We remember him serving. We remember him coming to humble himself to the point of death on a cross. We remember him securing our cleansing, finishing that work that removes our stain of sin and allows us to be right with him and to stand in his presence. And as we take communion, we remember his broken body and his shed blood and we look forward to his return. And yet that same symbol is distorted and twisted here by Judas as he takes it and it's a symbol of his commitment to putting himself first, to rejecting Jesus and his love, to remaining stained in his sin, uncleansed, unrepentant, untransformed after having walked with him for three years and seeing with his own eyes the miracles that he performed and hearing the word himself, he remains unclean. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. 
Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Again, the, the little dialogue here was, was just whispered into John's ear. There's one, one guy who knows what's happening. Peter's probably still getting, what did he say? What's going on? And they don't know why Judas got up. They don't know what Jesus meant by saying what you're going to do, do quickly. In fact, here's their confusion. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast. Or that he should give something to the poor. A couple theories there. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Okay, we, we've seen in John that light and darkness. Again, there's a, a deeper meaning than just, yeah, it happened to be, you know, the sun had set. There is a deep spiritual darkness in this story. There's one enemy, and his name is Satan. And he works through willing people like Judas. And don't be confused. You know, as, as Jesus went around the table, he served Judas. And he got down on his hands and, knee, and feet, hands and knees to wash the feet of Judas right along with the other followers. And yet Judas, in his heart, chose to carry out the plans of the enemy rather than to submit to the work of Jesus in his heart. And there's darkness. And now the, the example, the, the practical work of the foot washing, which le- points to the crucifixion, the example that Jesus has set now culminates in a command. So if you miss the example part, and I, I, feel, I feel like um, I can relate to what Jesus is having to do here. So I worked as a youth pastor uh, for my first 18 years of ministry. And after a while, I had to get over my um, nervousness of explicitly telling teenagers how they should act. You know, at first, I was trying to be like setting an example. You know, if I, the adult working with the students and my youth ministry team, will just set a good example of serving and loving, they will, they'll pick it up eventually by our model and example. I found that didn't really work. They just started enjoying being served even more. Yeah, well, we're not gonna, I'll just throw my garbage on the floor. The youth pastor will pick it up. This is awesome, right? So then I had to kind of go to the explicit level of, of explaining, hey, uh, students, did you notice how the, the bus driver took time off work to, to come and drive you down to the event? It'd be really nice if you would pick up your garbage and then thank the bus driver on your way off the bus. That'd be really cool to do. Uh, and, and maybe even go a step further, maybe you should look for ways to serve and pick up somebody else's trash as well. And so I tried doing the example approach like Jesus did. Finally, it got to, uh, I, I can identify with Jesus here, where it got to the command. You will pick up your own garbage or no one gets off this bus. <laughs> That's right. And so now Jesus really makes it explicit. If you miss the, the you know, just picking it up instinctively by watching me, wash feet and, and you didn't see that and then, I, and then I told you explicitly that you should be doing the same thing as you've seen me do. Let me, let me drive it home once more and give you a commandment. Hopefully you'll hear it this time. So this connected, connected with Judas just having walked out. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. A lot of talk about glorification and glory. This, it's talking about Jesus being lifted up. A triple meaning. Number one, Jesus is about to be lifted up on the cross. Literally higher than the ground level. He's lifted up. He's glorified in that way. Number two, he is lifted up and glorified from the grave a couple days later. He's risen from the dead. And number three, he's given glory. His reputation is made known in, among the Jews and the Gentiles that he is who he says he is. He is the Son of God. He is the one come from God because of God's love for the world. He's the one who cleanses. He is the way. He is the truth. 
He is the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And that whole sequence is set into motion as Judas gets up from the table and walks out. There's no turning back now. Up until this point, it's, we've seen uh, phrases hidden in here that says, and it was not yet his time. And the Jews picked up stones to stone him, but he slipped away. It wasn't the right time. But Jesus is now laying down his life. And he's allowing Judas to get up and walk out. His life is not being taken from him. He gives it intentionally, purposefully, willingly in his time and in his way. Verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Uh, you know, this is not, I mean, this is so simple that the youngest person in the room could know what Jesus is saying, and yet so difficult that the oldest person in this room cannot obey this. This is very simple. Just love each other the way I've loved you. A five-year-old could explain to us what that means. And yet, if we're honest, each of us would say, man, to do that every day in our marriage relationships, in our parenting, in our connections with our siblings, in our interactions with one another, to really authentically say at the end of the day, yeah, I've pretty much loved everyone who's come my way the way Jesus does. Man, we fall short. And this is a lifelong mission. You want to know what your mission is? There it is. Follow in his example, love the way he, he does, and that brings glory to him. It shows the world we're his disciples. Uh, churches have both an inward mission and an outward mission. You could call the inward mission discipleship. You could call the outward mission evangelism. A lot of times there's discussion about, you know, we're having a picnic today. Is that an outreach event or an inreach event? Is that an inward mission thing or an outward mission thing? Is it an evangelism thing or a discipleship thing, right? Jesus is saying your outward mission flows from accomplishing the inward mission. When you love each other like I love you, the watching world will know that you're my disciples, and you can't really skip that step and jump to the next one. Like, yeah, we're going to just bypass that whole washing each other's feet thing. And we're just going to go out there and tell people about Jesus. And then, you know, come on in and join us. Well, what is the us? Oh, it's just a group of people that don't really know each other or care about one another. Uh, a group of people where we all put ourselves first. Come on and join us. Boy, that's never going to work. It's as we accomplish the inward mission that our outward mission is strengthened and bolstered, right? As we obey this, as we practice it in our own homes first and in our interactions with one another as a church family, that then the watching world says, what in the world is up with those people? Wrong, not of this world. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. I would encourage you this week, as you, as you ponder that commandment, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. I put it there in your, in your notes at the end for personal reflection or group study. Just take a piece of paper, maybe your back of your bulletin there or, or grab a piece of notebook paper. Write out a list of all the ways that you can think of that Jesus loved. What are some of the practical ways that he loved the church, that he loved his followers, what are, what are some of the actions that flowed from that love? What are the ways that Jesus loved? And as you make that list, pray that God will give you the strength to tackle two or three of those this week and make some progress in those areas. That we don't just hear what he's saying, but that we receive the blessing as we do them, he said in verse 17. And the chapter ends, we've had betrayal, we've had serving and love, now it ends with a, a preview of the denial of, that Peter will uh, play th this role. 
Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Remember, Jesus just said, where I am going, you cannot come. Where is Jesus going, by the way? They don't know yet because they haven't read their Bibles. It hasn't been written yet. The story still be, where is Jesus going that he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? Just a guess. If you're wrong, it's okay. We'll still love you. He's going to the cross. Yeah, and he's saying, where I'm going, you cannot come. And Peter says, where are you going, Lord? Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Um, Peter, there's some suffering in your future. There's some living for others. There's some submitting yourself to the Father's will. In fact, getting real practical, there's martyrdom in store for some of you guys. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Man, he doesn't even know what he's saying, and he's actually, he's actually right. He just doesn't know it yet. And that's precisely what Jesus was talking about, yet Peter is speaking with earthly understanding, some heavenly wisdom that isn't even clear to him at this point. And then Jesus answered, will you? Lay down your life for me. Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Uh, Roosters crow in the morning. So Peter, you're you're making this statement, this bold statement, this Peter-esque statement, speaking before you think, as you normally do. But I'm telling you, it's already nighttime, And before tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. And you can read ahead in John's gospel to see that fulfilled in chapter 18. This is a messy chapter where you've got all merged together and blended together, serving and loving, betrayal and denial. And if anything, it should, it should give us each some humility to say, man, I am still a work in progress. Just like Peter, I am, I am tempted to save my own neck at times. Or like Judas, to take up the money bag when Jesus is calling me to take up the basin and serve. And Jesus it gives us an example and a command. You saw me take off the robe and the status and the designation of teacher and master and instead to put on the example of humility, the towel, the menial servant posture. And if you've seen me do it and you're hearing my command, love like he does. Come to him for the cleansing that you need. Follow in his example and he'll give you the strength that you need this week to put it into practice. How many of you would say that this week your desire is to obey that command to love like Jesus does? All right? Can I pray for you today?